Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. I'm pleased to be here tonight with Stephanie Kelton, Professor Stephanie Kelton. She is a professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Her doctorate is from Cambridge University. She studied, she somehow had a fellowship at the Levy Institute here at Bard College up in upstate New York, and is also the author of a book, The State, The Market, and the Euro, Metallism versus Chartalism in the Theory of Money. Stephanie, it's so great to have you here. Thank you, Jay. We have a long-standing interest in modern monetary theory here at Virtually Speaking, so we're really looking forward to having a chance to talk about it and uh, what it implies for public policy now in this extremely difficult time with bizarre things happening with European currency markets and uh, with the United States in a terrible slowdown that seems to be ungovernable by our current policymakers. Could you start, Stephanie, by explaining what modern monetary theory is and how it is an offshoot of traditional Keynesianism? Sure. Modern monetary theory is sort of a collection of ideas from various economists who have been influential to those of us that have worked in this tradition and developed what today is referred to as modern monetary. And so it pulls together insights from people like Ava Lerner, who was a contemporary of Keynes's, from Keynes himself, from an economist by the name of Hyman Minsky, who pioneered work in financial fragility, financial instability, um, the work of a man named Wynne Godley, who was a British economist, who also was at the Levy Institute, and uh, who also cared a lot about financial stability. And he paid close attention to the way the different sectors in the economy interact and looked for signs that um, tensions were building in one or more sectors and that there was a, a problem that was becoming unsustainable in some sense. So modern money theory pulled insights from many different groups, including post-Keynesians, institutionalists, and, and the others that I mentioned. And so it's a macroeconomic framework that answers the big questions that all macroeconomists have to be able to answer, like what determines the level of output and employment in the economy, what determines the interest rate, inflation rate, you know, the big questions. But what really distinguishes modern money theory from some of the other approaches is that it doesn't rest on unrealistic assumptions or describe an economy as it could be, but rather sort of takes on all of the complicating details that most of the other schools of thought leave aside, like money and debt and finance and involuntary unemployment and all the stuff that nobody wants to deal with because it's so messy. MMT takes that and says, wait a minute, this is all fundamental to a capitalist economy. You can't talk about market economies without talking about money and debt and finance and leverage. So let's not exclude those things. Let's not assume them away. Let's talk about the economy as it actually exists. Well, and in particular, the sector that the MMT folks have focused on or said we need to think about more carefully and observe what actually happens is the banking sector, correct? Well, I, don't, I, I know that we definitely pay a great deal of attention to the banking sector. I actually thought you were going to say the government sector. <laughs> well, but those two are deeply entwined in a way that really doesn't enter into, uh, into standard Keynesian macro theory anyway, aren't, yeah. isn't it? The standard approach when it comes to the public sector, of course, is that when you're talking about the federal government, it's really just like one giant blown-up household. And uh, you don't have to think much differently about the government 
as compared to thinking about a firm or an individual household. Uh, and MMT really emphasizes that that's something that's very, very wrong. I mean, we, we really have to recognize the fundamental difference between a government and a, a household or a business. Uh, and, and so we focus on the public sector's budget deficit or surplus in a way that's very different from the way the mainstream treats it. You mean in the sense that when you talk about a business running a surplus, that is having retained earnings at the end of two years, that's very different from a government having a surplus because, of course, it represents the sum of some collection of actors in the economy that's been gathered in by the government, right? Right. So when the public sector, when the U.S. government, for example, runs a surplus, what it means, of course, is that did I lose you, Jay? Yeah, hang in there. We'll, we'll, we'll have it in a second. All right. You were saying that the difference between a household and a government is that the government represents the sum total of all activity inside the economy, that is, all the households and all the businesses, and represents the other side of those transactions, right? Right. So, what? I, yeah, what I was trying to point out is that we spend so much time focusing on the government's budget, and we do it in isolation, and we don't think about the way the government's budget interacts with all the other players in the economy. So what MMT does is try to recognize that, wait a minute, you have a government sector, but you also have a non-government sector. So we're talking about the United States, and we're talking about the federal government. When we say the government runs, let's flip this around and not talk about a surplus, because that's not what we have today. Let's talk about where we are. We, we have a federal government that's currently running deficits and quite sizable ones. And most of the time when we hear about this in the media, we hear that this is necessarily a bad thing, that it somehow indicates that our government isn't behaving responsibly, that we're going to end up on a, you know, fiscal path that becomes unsustainable, and we could even end up like a country like Greece, something like that. Well, because, because the, the analogy to a household, if a household is running short of money, that is if their incomes have been cut and they're in debt, what they have to do, what they have to do is spend less in order to pay down the debt. Exactly. So we, we, we know that households face budget constraints. We know that households can only spend what they can earn or what they can borrow. And what we argue when we're in the MNT framework is that the federal government is fundamentally different from a household or a business when it comes to the constraints that it faces. So, for example, the federal government spends U.S. dollars, right? Where do U.S. dollars come from? I can't create U.S. dollars. I can't create the U.S. currency. I mean, if I got caught doing it, I'd go to jail, right? The U.S. dollar comes from the U.S. government. The U.S. government is not constrained financially the way that you and I are, the way that a private business is. We can't go out and spend as much as we want to by creating the currency. The federal government controls the currency, and it can spend it without limit in, in the sense that there's no operational constraint. There is nothing to prevent the government from buying whatever is for sale in U.S. dollars. And it can do that in unlimited fashion because it can create as much as it wants. It can, in, the, in one word, mint a trillion-dollar platinum coin if it wants to. It could, and it can do that now um, because we have what everybody now recognizes is the, is the fiat currency. We're no longer on a gold standard. The government doesn't promise to convert U.S. dollars into 
um, silver or gold or another country's currency or anything else. It is a pure fiat currency. And so there's no limit to the number of those liabilities that the federal government can emit, can issue. And so it's different from a household or a business. Fundamentally, in, in a very, very fundamental way, especially if it's a government that can issue its own fiat currency. And just for a historical point, folks, the United States went off gold under Nixon in 73, was it? Well, yeah, there, there are two years. 71, Nixon pulls the U.S. Uh, off. 71, thank you. And, and in 73, the whole Bretton Woods system is done and, and the gold windows closed and, and it's all done. Right. And that, that was the close of the Bretton Woods system, which was set up after World War II as a means of recovering from the you know, financial collapse that World War II created. Um, so what's fundamentally different then is that a government that controls its own currency, unlike, say, Greece or Spain, can avoid any kind of any has no constraints on what it wants to spend. It can make the economy have as much money as it needs. Well, okay, so it, there are no financial constraints, but there, uh -huh. are, there are constraints, and we always emphasize this, and the constraints are on the real side of the economy. So in theory, we can say that the U.S. government can afford to buy whatever's for sale in U.S. dollars, okay? That would be the financial limit, right? That's, that's, it's what's for sale. Does that mean that the government should buy everything that's for sale in U.S. dollars? Of course not, right? you're paying attention to what's happening in the real economy, and the constraint is inflation. We're back. So you're saying that the constraint we're facing is not financial. That is, you can print as much money as you want to, but you run the risk of, of creating inflation, of creating more money that is necessary to call the goods to market. Right. It, it's spending. It's too much spending. And it's not just too much spending by the government sector. It would be too much spending by any sector in the economy. That could push the economy beyond its, capacity to produce and thereby drive up prices. And so you don't want total spending, aggregate spending, to go higher than the economy's full employment capacity. And the general criticism you get from traditionalists of NMT is that you are proposing creating an inflation, a permanently hyperinflationary model, that your willingness to say we can just spend money means that you would, therefore, just hyperinflate the economy at any opportunity. Well, we do hear that criticism. It's not at all consistent with anything any of us has ever said. We're very, very careful. MMT began as an approach that was described as how to reach full employment with price stability. So the price stability side is very important to us. We put it front and center. We never use the term, actually, I don't think you'll hear any MMT economists use the phrase printing money. It's a kind of term that, that's a carryover from the gold standard, and that's not how modern governments spend modern money. Modern governments spend modern money, by and large, with keystrokes. And so we're in this new age where we have modern money that is created simply through keystrokes. And we know this, and the central bank has told us this. Ben Bernanke has been really candid about this because he was asked in an interview on 60 Minutes, Scott Kelly asked him a couple of years ago, whether it was taxpayer money that the Fed was spending. And Bernanke's response was, it's not taxpayer money. He said the Banks have accounts at the Fed. When we want to spend, we just use the computer to mark up their account. And that's really what's going on. If you strip away everything else, when the government spends, it's adding numbers to somebody else's bank account. It's taking numbers 
out of your bank account. And so then by definition, that when, when the government is deficit spending, it's adding more numbers than it's subtracting. Remember, MMT focuses on the fact that not only do you have a government sector, but you have a non-government. And so if the government spends 100 and taxes 90, somebody ended up with the extra 10, and it's the non-government sector. Now, one thing that I've read very clearly stated is that the way money comes into the system, the way that the numbers get changed is as much created by the banks that is from the Fed, from the Fed of Chicago. The re, in the real world, the bank's lending is not normally constrained by the amount of excess reserve it has at any given moment. That is, a bank will issue a loan, and the, and the federal government will acknowledge the fact that it has sufficient reserves to cover that loan, right? Right. So banks also create money. They create bank money. They don't create government money. They create bank money, and they can do that. If there is sufficient capital, they can meet the demand for loans from creditworthy customers until the cows come home. They don't need to have reserves in order to make loans. That's what the textbooks teach. All the textbooks that come across my desk year after year, the publishers send lots of different books for us to look at. And anytime you get a book on money and banking or macro theory, you can bet yourself that you're going to open up the page where they deal with what do banks do, and they're going to tell you that, Banks lend other people's money, and that's not what banks do. Banks create money. Loans create deposits. Banks credit customers' accounts with newly created money if they think that this is a creditworthy person that should receive a loan. The bank gets the loan as the asset. That's what the bank wants. It charges interest. That's an earning asset as long as the customer makes good on, on the loan, and the customer gets new bank money that it can go out and spend. Would you mind saying that one more time? Sure. So the, the textbook story is that banks lend other people's money. You walk into a bank and you sit down with a loan officer and you say, I have a small business plan. I'd like to borrow some money. Can you make me a loan? The textbook tells you that essentially the loan officer gets up and goes to the vault or to the computer and checks to see whether the bank has enough reserves on hand to make that loan. And that's not what happens. Banks don't lend other people's money. They don't lend reserves. A banker looks at the customer, looks at the business plan, looks at your credit history and a whole range of things, and then decides whether you're a credit-worthy customer, whether you're a good risk. And if the determination is that the bank can make a profit by making you a loan, the bank makes you the loan independent of whether it has any extra cash on hand. It doesn't make the loan with someone else's money. It just credits your bank account with newly created bank money, and in the process, the bank acquires the loan, which is the interest-earning asset that the bank is after in the first place. And at the end of the day, the Fed looks out over all the banks in the country and says our reserve requirements are being met and all is good. Well, banks have no choice but to meet their reserve requirements. So the Fed sets the reserve requirements. So what the Fed does is say, you have to hold reserves against a fraction of the deposits your customers keep with you. So the bank has no choice but to meet the reserve requirement. But the bank does not have to meet the reserve requirement on a daily basis, and the bank does not have to be meeting its reserve requirement currently in order to make additional loans. So the bank always makes the loan to the credit-worthy customer that thinks it will be profitable, 
If it ends up short reserves, there are any number of ways that the bank can meet their reserve requirement after the fact. Right. And so they're creating this money in that sector of the economy. And that's not theory. That's not what we would read in a macro textbook. That's what really happens, right? That's what really happens. And actually, the best place to get this story is from the Federal Reserve itself. Right. Right. The Fed does not deny this at all. The Fed understands perfectly well that banks can create loans without having reserves in advance. Right. And I was quoting from the Federal Bank of Chicago, actually. And I'll quote again. Rather, loans are made or not made, depending on the bank's credit policies and its expectations about its ability to obtain the funds necessary to pay its customers' check and maintain required reserves in a timely fashion, which is exactly what you just said. Right. Banks, banks are capital constrained. They're not reserve constrained. Right. Right. Okay. So now let's talk about the difference between a public entity, a government that can print its own money and a public entity that cannot. Because that's at the heart of what's going on in the Eurozone versus what's going on here in the United States. Right? Right. Can talk about that difference? Sure. So I, I think if you look around at the private sector in almost any country today, uh, you're going to see very high debt levels, very high debt relative to income. If you look at some of the countries in the Eurozone, you're going to see high debt levels relative to their country's GDP. We hear the term debt crisis all the time. I think the term applies perfectly well to what we see in many countries if we're talking about their private sectors, student loan debt, credit card debt, car payments, mortgages, you add all of those debts up, and you still have countries where the private sector is highly, highly indebted relative to where its income is. Is that a debt crisis? Well, it is if they can't pay. That's what a debt crisis is, right? A debt crisis means you have debt that you can't service. So like in Greece or Spain or perhaps soon Italy, you've got a situation where it makes perfectly good sense to use the term debt crisis because you have entities that don't have sufficient cash inflow to service their existing commitment. And that's what a debt crisis means. In a country like the U.S., our debt is denominated in U.S. dollars. Japan's debt is denominated in, US, in a Japanese yen. In the U.K., their debt is denominated in British pounds. The difference in all of those countries that I just named is that they can always make their payments on time because all they have to do is pay in their own currency. Greece doesn't control the euro. It has no entity that can create the euro on its behalf. It gave up its fiat currency that it used to have, and it replaced it with what's essentially a foreign currency. Same for all the other Eurozone countries. And so they're indebted in a currency that they can't issue, that they don't control, and that the only way they can get it is to raise it by taxing. And when the economy is not doing well, it's more and more difficult to do that or to borrow the currency. And the problem that they're facing over there is that financial markets understand that these countries don't create the currency. And therefore, in order to lend to them, they charge a premium, and it's called a risk premium. And the financial markets are just essentially saying, we know there's a good chance that you may not be able to get the euros that you need to pay us back. Therefore, in order to lend to you, we need a little extra assurance. So we're going to charge you higher rates. The more worried they get, the higher those premiums go, and we all know how, how the story ends. 
Right. And we've known how the story is going to end for quite a while. And nonetheless, they're still doing this. Um, I just want to quote from Atrios today because uh, the thing in Spain is really confusing. And the way he put it, he said, the more I think about the latest actions in Spain, the more flummoxed I am. If borrowing costs of the state are a prime concern, which supposedly they are, then they did the stupidest uh, Xing thing possible. They borrowed a bunch of money to give to their banks and made all their other debts subordinate to that. That is, that $150 billion just put Spain into a worse situation. We should expect the financial markets to respond negatively to this action, shouldn't we? Yeah, if they're repeating the mistakes of Ireland, and that's exactly what you would expect. So that 150 billion euros is going to actually make the Spanish situation worse because they're going to be charged a higher risk premium for the money they're being used to service that loan they just received from the European Central Bank, right? It sounds that way at the moment. Things change so quickly there. Yeah get renegotiated, and all of a sudden you find out there's a backdoor plan and funding is coming from this or that channel, it's very difficult to understand at all times what exactly is going on. Well, that's not exactly good advertisement for uh, what they're doing either, is it? I want to know, too, that Iceland also is getting out of trouble because they, too, have their own currency. The krona allowed them to get out from underneath this with a very aggressive policy of helping underwater mortgage holders and other loan holders inside the Icelandic economy. And that's come back, again, illustrates the fact that if you control your own currency, you can manage debt in a different way, right? Yeah, and together with the default on... Uh, right. Right, huge. Yeah, a huge default. But, but Rogoff and Reinhardt, in, in their book, um, This Time It's Different, talk about different default strategies, and they're all a lot easier to pull off if you control your own currency. Absolutely. That's the Argentinian case as well, right? Right. When they went off the dollar linkage, they were able to suffer the default and recover the real economy. That's right. They recovered quite quickly, as a matter of fact. So... That explains why it was probably a mistake for a country like Greece to enter into the Eurozone because of the loss of sovereignty that this represented. And it's creating huge political conflict as well right now because the European Central Bank would like to choose the Greek government, and that doesn't really work very well with the idea that the Greeks get to elect their parliament. And so that's creating tension in the Eurozone, is it not? Yeah, yeah. The understatement, a uh, little bit of tension, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the euro was never a democratic move in the first place, right? If we knew then, before the euro was introduced, that the German population was overwhelmingly opposed to giving up the Deutschmark and moving to the euro. There was no question about it but that the German people opposed this. But it didn't matter, right? The Dutch weren't happy either. I mean, I seem to remember the Dutch voted this down at one point. But the idea was the European elites thought they could hold this together, and this was a way of getting to a unified Europe. Yeah, and I think they can hold it together. They're just, they keep going about it the wrong way time after time. It reminds me of Churchill's old saying, something about uh, once governments have exhausted every other alternative, they eventually do the right thing. <laughs> but, you know, the, the funny thing is, in the, in the polls in Greece, what are you hearing from the Greek people? Do you want to leave the euro or do you want to keep the euro? They say they want, to keep, they want to stay in the euro. They just don't want to be broke. They have been terrified. They bought completely, you know, the idea that if they were to, to leave the euro under forced or voluntary circumstances, it doesn't matter. Either way, if you try to leave, you're doomed for the rest of history. I mean, you know. <laughs> but you, you would think the Greeks would have a longer view than that. <laughs> Great deficit. They're just terrified. Well, it's been sold very well as the uh, source of stability for all of Europe. And 
it's hard to see how they get out of this in any in any good way. But that doesn't explain why we're doing crazy things in the United States. It, it sure doesn't. Uh, so why are we doing crazy things in the United States? Why? And because on this, there's really no tension right now in the current state of affairs between what a modern monetary theorist would say and what a traditional Keynesian would say we should do right now, right? Paul Krugman may make sarcastic remarks about senior origin stuff, but you and he agree on what we should do right now, don't you? I, I think absolutely, yeah. We both recognize that we, we have to see more on the fiscal side. I think Paul has more confidence than I do in the Fed's ability to do more. In fact, most of what I'm hearing from progressives is that it's time for the Fed to do more. I'm hearing from very progressive organizations, you know, why is the Fed sitting on its hands? It's time to do more. This is no time for independence. And I, and I just keep sitting there shaking my head thinking, well, you know, what else, what else do you want the Fed to do? I know what Krugman wants. Krugman thinks that uh, all the Fed needs to do is credibly commit to a higher inflation target. But the reason that Americans aren't back in the, in the, sh- in the um, shopping malls is because, um, un- because the inflation rate is so low right now and the Fed is committed to keeping interest rates low uh, that what the Fed needs to do is to tell us that they're going to keep rates super low for a very long time, which in the textbook would tell you that that's going to lead to lots of borrowing, lots of money creation, and therefore lots of inflation. And so the model predicts that if the Fed holds to this low interest rate, quantitative easing, doing all of these things that should generate some inflation down the road, (laughs) and they commit to doing that well into the foreseeable future, that we will begin to form expectations that inflation will go up in the future. And if we think inflation's going up in the future, why better go out and buy that computer today? Why better go out and buy that new sofa and do right? But that's what's holding us back. And I, I just think that that's that's really crazy for me. Well, the problem is they've got this zero interest rate going on. But, you know, it reminds me of the famous quote from Friedman that says, money is and always has been always a monetary phenomenon, which was kind of supplanted by the people, the rational expectationists in the late 80s, who said, oh, no, what really matters is what people expect will happen. But when you've got the zero bound, what Krugman's actually arguing for is a negative real interest rate, right? Right. Right. But those those are really consistent ideas uh, when we talk about expectations because all all the, you know, Lucas real business like oh, all the new classical folks did was say um, if the Fed tells you that it's going to ease policy, then you can formulate the expectation that inflation will be higher in the future and that will get you that uh, lower real interest rate. Right. And on the flip side, when Chile said we will absolutely positively not spend a nickel more than comes into our coffers, that stopped the hyperinflation automatically because they made that clear commitment. The trouble is is that there's another whole tool lying around that nobody's talking about, and that is um, actually spending money and building things and hiring people. And the fiscal side of this seems to be completely off the table. And, again, isn't that something that you, an MMT person, would say the same thing that the traditional Keynesian would say and say, look, there are unutilized factors of production. There's unutilized capital. There's unutilized labor. We've got this huge unemployment rate, and we've got excess capacity. Why don't we just buy some stuff? Exactly. Exactly. I I think you can just listen to the business sector. They'll tell you. I, I don't care, you know, how many 
people on the right tell you that it's, it's taxes and uncertainty about regulation and all this that's holding business back. If you actually poll businesses, survey businesses, every single time they'll tell you the number one thing keeping them on the sidelines right now is sales. The, yes, they report that they also care about taxes and regulation, but the first thing they care about is sales. And so sales create jobs, and spending creates sales. Somebody's got to make the cash register ring. So when 70% of total spending in the economy comes from the consumer, and the consumer is still trying to pay down debt, economists use the term deleverage, they're still trying to work themselves out of the hole they dug over the course of the last decade. Uh, they're not back in force yet. And until businesses become convinced that the consumer is back, why are they going to start hiring? Why are they going to invest in new capital? They're already flush with cash. What are they saying on $2 trillion in profits? They don't need to ramp up hiring and spending on new productive capacity. As you said, they already have lots of excess capacity. So where does that leave you? The rest of the world is going to fill all the gap by buying our exports. I don't think so. Or you have one choice left, and that's government spending. And at the state and local level, forget about it, right, because they're undermining anything positive that the federal government is trying to do and has tried to do in terms of stimulus because they're quickly pulling away with the right hand everything the federal government's been trying to do with the left. So it, it can only come from one place is my answer. Right. And nobody wants to talk about it, which is what you said. Nobody wants to touch it. The morning talk shows, all the progressives, they won't go there because they say it's a political non-starter. So they go right back to the Fed and say Bernanke has to do it. Honest to God, the administration just released as part of the speech today that he gave in Ohio a chart showing the administration has the lowest rate of government spending in the post-war period as something they're pleased about. Yep. I mean, it's – and so – and so can you explain this? Can, I mean, we have stories we tell here, but why, why would the government commit? Why would, why would the federal government commit to a policy that's, by any measure, bad? Well, What's the motivation for engaging in, obviously, bad public policy? I don't think they believe it is bad public policy. I'm in contact with at least a few people who have very direct connections to uh, the Obama administration. And so I at least have the benefit of hearing some things secondhand. I don't think they view it as bad public policy at all. Clearly, there are politics at work here. And when the president said in his speech today, everyone believes, that's what he said, everyone believes that we need to get our deficits down, that we need to bring our, you know, get our fiscal house in order. Everyone believes. And what I think that basically translates to is, Polls show that the deficit fear-mongering has worked. And I need to go out there and let people know, I understand that you want this done. I, I get that you're worried. So we have a plan to bring those down. People think we're becoming the next Greece because there's no counter-narrative. Nobody on the left challenges fundamentally the argument that you hear from the Pete Petersons of the world. Nobody. Now, the story that we tell here is that not that there are polls telling them this, but that the people who are running the, the Democratic Party, the New Democrats, the centrists, the DLC, the folks who have been in control of policy formulation from about the Clinton era on, believe this, believe that the United States, in order to compete internationally, has to 
reduce its commitment of funds to to, to wage earners, essentially. It needs to get labor costs down in order to compete internationally. Have you ever had any sense that there's any truth to that supposition? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I hear it. Um, I, I think it's absolutely suicidal economic policy. I mean, you cannot engage in a global race to the bottom because nobody wins. I, we, we learned this, you know, sometime in the 30s, I thought, but let's that's exactly the same kind of theory that led to people trying to use bigger than neighbors strategies right. in trade policy. And right. to say we're going to do that with wage rates seems insane. But it seems to be, I mean, you can find, you can find policy papers from, from think tanks, from new Democrat think tanks that say exactly that, right. that we're faced with a new economy and that it's going to be painful, but we have to accept the fact that Americans are just not going to be able to make as much money and also compete in the world economy. Right. Now, do you you don't think that's part of the administration's mindset? I, I don't know. I certainly know that they that they anticipate that there's going to be some pain going forward when they're constantly using phrases like shared sacrifice and tough choices. You know that somebody can, somebody's going to get hurt, uh, and and that's part of it. I I kind of think that. Well, I, I guess I think that what they've done is commit themselves to. The, the Buffett rule stands. The, you know, we're going to go where the money is. Since they won't recognize that they create the currency and they can create the currency to spend more of it in order to create more jobs, they are going with the narrative that we have to find some money somewhere in order to deal with, you know, the deficit problem. But we also have challenges in the fragile economy and all that. So what we're going to do is take from the 1% because, after all, they weren't going to spend a whole lot of that money anyway, so we can safely tax them without putting too much fiscal drag into the economy, and then we can, quote-unquote, afford to spend more on education and all the kinds of things that the president talked about today, energy and, and all these things. So By education, we mean hiring teachers back, right? Hiring back teachers, paying them more. These are the kinds of things he talked about today, rebuilding our infrastructure. All these things are are good. They put money into the economy. They create jobs. In the case of you know rebuilding infrastructure and hiring teachers, that's direct job creation. So those are great. What he's what he's going with is the narrative that he's found a way to pay for it that's fiscally responsible, and it involves the you know paying your fair share and all of that kind of shared sacrifice. So um, it it could potentially improve the jobs picture and the economy. If, in fact, taking more from the 1% doesn't reduce aggregate spending as much as adding to all these other programs, I would prefer, quite frankly, and I think it's a much better strategy for the president, I'd like him to say uh, to the Republicans, you get on TV again, go big, you don't have much time left and things aren't looking good. Get on television and say, you want the Bush tax cuts extended. I'll see the Bush tax cut extension. You know how I felt about it. I was opposed. I'm going to give a little here. I'll see you the Bush tax cuts, and I'll raise you a full payroll tax holiday. Oh, God. Boy, boy, do I disagree with that. <laughs> I, I did, that, would, that would just completely destroy Social Security's mandate. And losing Social Security is pretty much the only thing we have left protecting people. But let's let, let's not get into that particular policy argument because if we do, we'll be at it for 20 minutes. We only got 20 minutes. Um, let me ask you what 
a modern monetary theorist would tell the president if there were no political constraints to do right now? Well, I, I just well, we oh. as a group we as a group have been advocating a full payroll tax holiday okay. three years. Jay, he has to do it with a commitment that the federal government will fund the program in full, and not a single current or future retiree will see any reduction at all in benefits. That's the way it should be. And that means, but but what that means practically is that general federal revenues will be used to pay back the trust fund, the funds that are lost to it. Exactly. Let me make this point because I think it's a very important one. There are four trust funds. There's the OASI, which is right. part of Social Security. There's DI, disability, that's part of Social Security. There's HI, that's health insurance. And then there's SMI, that's the supplemental medical insurance. Four trust funds. The CBO scores these. The trustees of the Social Security Administration score. They forecast into the 75-year time horizon to see which one's in trouble and which one's not in trouble. Every three of these are in trouble and one isn't. OASDI, those two are in trouble. Health insurance, in trouble. uh, Supplemental medical insurance, solvent as far as the eye can see, according to the trustees, and you know why? It's the only one that is funded out of general revenue. It's the only one that's not in danger of being cut. So I'd much rather see them do that. So that's one policy that we all have been advocating for three years. Another is, and and the president has been advocating this as well, and it's a good policy, revenue sharing. The, The state and local governments are continuing to bleed and they're continuing to cut. They have to have another round of aid in order to stop the bloodletting at the state and local level. So we fully support uh, uh, revenue sharing. It's an old Republican idea. They do it on a per capita basis. You get more. You've got to get money to the state so that they can stop cutting their budgets. So that's the third thing uh, is a job guarantee proposal, something modeled on FDR's uh, works progress uh, administration, the old WPA, the CCC, the NYA, the National Youth Administration, these were uh, programs under the New Deal, jobs, right, for the young and for everybody else. Creating capital, it's still being used. I've stayed in those lodges. The CCC cabins are great things. They've made capital that's been generating income ever since the 1930s. It's an amazing program. Hospitals, sports stadiums, schools. Right, all kinds of things. Right, capital investments, what you do when when capital costs are low, you go out and borrow money and build things that have a bigger ROI than the money you're borrowing. And that's an absolutely no-brainer, and it's crazy that we're not building things right now. Absolutely crazy. Right, we've got uh, millions of unemployed construction workers, manufacturing workers. These are people who are good at building things. But, but Stephanie, I'm sorry to interrupt you because you wanted to say guarantee everybody a job at 8 bucks an hour or 10 bucks an hour, right? Yeah, and, and you can supplement that with benefits and you can do a range of other things as well. But, yes, it's a, it's a job guarantee program. And, and I would implement that one after the other two have been implemented and had a bit of time to work themselves out because you don't need to start your job guarantee program with, 25 million Americans, which is what you're looking at today, 25 million people who want full-time work and can't find it. Well, let's get a couple of programs in place that are going to help this economy recover significantly. And then for those that inevitably won't get picked up, because no capitalist economy on earth sustains full employment. It, it cycles. 
and you're always going to have booms and busts. And so you ought to have something in place uh, that's not just an unemployment compensation, and it's not just a paycheck when what people really want is a, is a job, that you can absorb those workers and give them something useful to do. And when the private sector is ready to hire them again, they're released from the public sector job and they go back and work in the private sector. So, yeah, some kind of a program modeled on the old New Deal program. Right. And there's always a science lab that can be replaced. There's always a, a wall that can be built. There's always something that can be done in the public sector that will have a positive ROI whenever we're, at, whenever we're under full employment. I mean, there always will be as long as you recognize that there's no downside to spending money that you can create at will. Yeah, you've got $2.3 trillion infrastructure deficit. So you've got a lot of stuff to fix, and then you have a lot of stuff that you need to build, and then it's going to later need to be maintained. So absolutely. And if you use – is it Robert Gordon at Northwestern used to talk about a capital budget? Is that the guy you used to that do was, that? Uh, Robert Eisner. Robert Eisner. And if you're using that money, if you're hiring these people to actually build physical capital, you're actually not creating debt. As you're offsetting the money you're spending by creating physical capital that generates a stream of income in the form of services in the future. So if you dedicate those government jobs to infrastructure, maintenance and construction, then there's no downside at all. Well, you're building the economy's real wealth. Exactly. And, yeah. and you're, taking, you're taking the fact that there's excess capacity in the labor market to address the opportunity, to create an opportunity to, to capitalize that in the public sector capital markets, right? Right. Gotcha. I've got a question I promised I would ask, and that is, and this is way off topic from what we've just been talking about, but it's a question from the audience, and, and it is, can you comment on Ron Paul's call to get rid of the Fed? Yeah, there's there. He's definitely tapped into something. I, I mean, people I think are extremely frustrated and rightfully so at the response to the financial crisis, which uh, everybody sort of looked at what the Fed did and said, why are they handing out trillions of dollars to the guys who delivered us the crisis? And Wall Street's making off like a bandit, and Main Street, you know, suffering. And uh, so there's a lot of backlash against the Fed and the bailouts and so on. And I understand that. Um, I'm, I'm very careful because remember why the Federal Reserve was created in the first place. And people like Ron Paul want to go back to what they call sound money. You know, if you want to spend it, you need to dig up something from the ground first and show me that you can afford to buy it. Well, they, they, they believe in the real bills doctrine. Yeah. They want to go back to having private banks. Right, right. Um, but we have we have a government that, because we have the monetary system that we have, we have the policy space that allows us to run the kinds of policies that we were just talking about and to achieve what no capitalist economy has successfully achieved so far, which is a full employment economy that maintains itself through time. We can do that, and part of the reason we can do that is because... We have a fiat currency that's a reserve currency. Exactly. So the Fed can be used, and you may not like what the Federal Reserve does, and, and that's important. And uh, I actually serve on Senator Sanders' committee, along with some other MMT economists and a Nobel Prize winner and a handful of other progressive economists, um, Bernie Sanders, Senator Sanders, and, and asked us if we would serve on this committee to reform the Fed. And we're working closely with him uh, on a number of proposals. And so there are things about the Fed and the way it's structured and what it does that we recognize are problematic. Uh, but this sort of 
And well, things like Money Center Bank presidents being on the oversight board of the New York Fed for their borrowing practices. Conflicts of interest. <laughs> right, right. Little things like that. Right. The head of one of the most systemically dangerous financial institutions in the world, moonlighting on a regulatory agency uh, called the Federal Reserve. Right. Right. We, we we probably would look dimly at that if we were con- if we were constructing our our policy regime uh, behind the veil of ignorance. Right. Um, but at the same time, the idea of we only can, only can have a fiat currency that we're lucky enough to have as a reserve currency if we have a federal banking structure. We can't have a bunch of private sector banks and also have monetary policy. Yeah, and there are there are things that you know, Minty, for example, uh, was a big advocate of community banking, and so uh, there there are proposals in the MMT literature. I'm not familiar with all of them. There, there is a large, a large literature there, but uh, there are definitely ways that we can reform the way that banking is done and make, banking, make bankers go back to doing what bankers were supposed to do, which is uh, to be good underwriters and to lend to people and businesses and not create this, you know, this play in this huge speculative game where it's all about short-term gain and synthetic this and collateralize that. Well, and of course, the whole structure of Glass-Steagall was meant to create that kind of localization. I mean, you had to have only charted by one state, and there were other mechanisms in place to try to keep banks from becoming too big. But that, again, comes into face with this elite centrism that I, that I was talking about earlier, is that I think that there's a, a consensus among the administration, among the people at Goldman Money Center Bank, Goldman Sachs, that is, um, and the people who run the government agencies, that the United States has a responsibility to create financial institutions that can compete globally. And by compete globally, they mean running trading desks in derivatives. That seems to be a consensus among the the very serious people. Yeah, and if you heard Jamie Dimon's uh, testimony the other day, he said, you know, be careful with the regulatory stuff because, you know, if you guys are too tough, we'll, we'll go elsewhere. And our answer is, and Bill Black, for example, has been really clever with this, you know, we'll pack your bags. You know, we don't want. Exactly. Right? That, that's a good thing. Let them go elsewhere. The trouble is, is that, you know, as Dick Durbin said, they own the Senate. The people who were sitting at the front of the room supposedly grilling Jamie Dimon were not. I mean, yeah. it was an embarrassing, it, it, an embarrassing display of sucking up the diamond on the part of the people who receive small fractions of money of the money that the bank makes in order to do this. I, I agree. I think it was absolutely embarrassing. I thought the purple tie was a nice touch, though. So he, he was equally, you know, <laughs> equally aware of both the red and the blue friends. Yeah. Or, or just, just throwing it in their face. I mean, you know. He didn't look at all concerned, did he? No, not at all concerned. And, no and and had the gall to say you need to put your fiscal house in order. I I love that. The the entire thing ended with Jamie Dimon lecturing the U.S. Senate on how to be responsible with money. That was it. <laughs> so so let me just finish with the MMT prescription. The MMT prescription for for right now would be um, 
get rid of get three, a three-year payroll tax holiday, put money back in the hands of people with the highest propensities to consume, to drive aggregate demand as quickly as possible, create um, a federal jobs program where people work, preferably at creating infrastructure projects or other capital capital creating projects. And then what happens when the huge inflation comes? What do the MMT people say to that? Okay, so <laughs> if and when inflation becomes a problem, it is, uh, as long as it's the right kind of inflation, and by that I mean it's coming from the demand side of the economy and not from speculative bubbles and oil and, you know, commodities and healthcare, whatever, you know, it's not, it's not being driven by other kinds of things. We don't want supply side inflation. We're not talking about that. But if we start to observe inflation and we believe that the inflation is becoming too high, then what does MMT say? It says you do exactly the opposite of what you did to reach full employment. That is, you cut government spending or you begin to raise taxes or you do a combination of each. And the payroll tax holiday is maybe a nice way to do it. We don't say three years. We don't put a time frame on it. It's a payroll tax holiday that should be in place until the economy has recovered. And then at that point, if you want to reinstitute all or some portion of the payroll tax, you can do that. And that would be a way to then slow spending because people would have, of course, less because them. you're taking money out of the hands of people with the highest marginal propensity to consume, right. people with the lowest incomes, and they're going to reduce aggregate demand accordingly. Right. The payroll tax is the most, I think it's safe to say, the most regressive and punishing tax that the middle class pay. The payroll tax, um, we pay payroll taxes on our income up to $110,100. So if you make less than $110,100, you are paying the FICA tax on every single dollar you earn. If you make $1,000, you pay the FICA tax on every single dollar you earn. If you make, make $10,000, you pay FICA tax. No exclusions, no deductions, right. no credits, no IRA credit, nothing. It's and, out of the top. And what percent of all wage earners make $110,100 or less? 95%. So 95% of working people pay FICA on every single dollar they earn. So it means that that affects the entire economy, the entire working economy in, in essence. Right, and it means it's a great way to get money into the hands of people who will spend. And it's also a pretty effective way to take income away if the time comes that you want to slow things, things down. Okay, so the response to any kind of... Now, you, you made a cavil about supply-side inflation. By that, do you mean exogenous shocks in something like an oil market? Uh, well, it could be exogenous or it could be market-manipulated. I mean, it could be... Uh, right? So, yeah, so a real estate bubble um, can lead to pressure on housing prices and it couldn't add to that component of the CPI. But what I was talking about was just, you know, the commodity. Or, or, or withholding oil from markets. I mean, if, if, if a cartel formed, say an oil cartel formed and wouldn't allow certain oil onto markets and that would have a cascading inflationary effect, that right. kind of thing? Right. I mean, the U.S. does not have in its history any experience with hyperinflation. Never happened here. We, we just don't have that. And the only... The only kind of significant inflation that we've had, and by kind of significant, you know, I mean 8, 10, 12, maybe percent, uh, is when we have had 
oil price shocks. I mean, that's what's generated the really substantial inflation that we've had in this country. Well, the, the one that came in the after the 73 oil embargo, but that was also, you know, Arthur Burns and Richard Nixon really screwing up, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, they they, tr- they tried to mask the recession. I, I've always understood it to be that they knew that there was going to be a recession stemming from the reduction in real income coming from the increase in oil prices, and so they tried to, in the terms of art, accommodate that increase in price structure by trying to mask the oil price-based increase by a general level of inflation. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't argue that jar, but um, oil price shocks have certainly played an important role in generating inflationary pressure. And, of course, with the demise of, of the unions, uh, the link between wage increases and price increases has, has substantially broken. So, we Yeah, right now there's yeah, right now there's no story of wage price spirals with wages going up. Uh, the capital capital's winning that terms of trade argument every time now. Right. For most Americans, real wages have been falling since 1973. Right. For that same 95 percent. I mean, that's that's a tremendous statistic. Toward for 25 years, the bulk of the working population in this country hasn't seen an increase in their real wage. Bottom four quintiles or more than that. Not. Sh- Sure, very close to that. Not sure on the exact percentage. But it's something like that, somewhere between 70 and 85 percent. Well over 50 percent, right. 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 And that would seem to be a crisis, you know, in, an, in a country that was run by democratically elected processes. It is a crisis, and it explains, I think, quite well why we have a private sector that has turned increasingly to debt to supplement the spending that used to be uh, driven by rising wages that no longer is, and so in order to achieve a higher standard of living, people have turned to debt. Right. Right? Right. They've been trying to maintain their permanent income. (laughs) Productivity goes way up. Wage growth stays flat. The difference between the two is, of course, the profit. So profits have done well. Wages have stagnated. and and the Tax, tax, Tax rates on both capital income Income from capital and um, and wealth, state taxes are have vanished. And payroll taxes have gone up. Right. Right. And leverage has gone up. You might think that this country wasn't actually having much representative government. Actually, you know, you'd start to suspect that there's some kind of problem with the overall polity. But uh, that's not a question we can resolve in the next two minutes. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. How would you like to us to remember? Um, what we can learn from from MMT in the current environment, if we had one thing that we should walk away with? Well, I I would like people to recoil when they hear someone on either side use the term shared sacrifice or uh, we can't afford it or something like that. When President Obama uttered the phrase, we're broke, I I just thought, oh, no, (laughs) we're done for. You know, you can't believe that. You're the United States government, and the United States dollar comes from you. So what I'd like people to to respond with when they hear these arguments is, why do you you think we can't spend the money? The money comes from us. We create the currency. And it also comes from our work, and we're taxed at very low rates as well. So it's not like we're not broke at all. And the reason we know we're not broke is because treasuries trading 10 years out at negative rates. Yeah, I mean, what we all, I think, 
recognized in the discussion today, at least what you and I talked a lot about, is that the federal government needs to be doing more. Right now, the private sector is not strong enough. It's not back in full force. And in order to keep the economy from lapsing back into recession, we need to keep spending from contracting. And so we want the federal government to spend more. Their excuse is, we don't have any money. And our response has to, has to be, yes, you do. You yes. are, that's a crazy thing to say. That's right. That's right. It's a crazy thing to say. And, and every single Sunday, David Gregory stands up and says it again on Meet the Press. So I guess it's our job to just keep calling him crazy and keep calling the Washington elite crazy. But it gets uh, frustrating. So I'm glad you're there talking to Senator Sanders, Senator Sanders staff. Senator, if I got that wrong, yeah. Bernie Sanders, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's right. I, I was in Burlington when he was mayor. I remember him. Um, and thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. And uh, we're going to put up a little um, UK, UK, I'm sorry, UMKC shrine here, I think, to recognize it. So this is the, the Second Life home of the University of, of Missouri, Kansas City campus. It's really great to have you here. Well, I'm so grateful. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank Stay you. Good. Give my best to Lawrence. Take care. Bye-bye. Good night. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Ackroyd. I'm here tonight. I'm very happy to be here tonight with Stephanie Kelton, Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City campus. Actually, you know, we're an outpost for the uh, for the UMKC, Stephanie. I mean, we've had um, Bill Black here. We've had um, Joan. Oh my Lord, I'm forgetting her name. Her husband, his husband, his wife here. June, June Carbone. June Carbone. Thank you very much um, here. And I feel like we should put a little tiny shrine to <laughs> UMKC. So it's really great to have you here. It's great to be back. And I, what we're going to talk about tonight, folks, is modern monetary theory. And that's kind of taking the world by storm bit by bit. It's doing it kind of in an outsider versus insider way, so it's interesting to see how it's been having more and more impact on people's thinking. But the funniest thing for me was um, the ruckus around the $2 trillion platinum coin. The idea that the president could just get rid of the debt, get rid of the deficit, or, or sorry, eliminate the debt ceiling by just minting a $2 trillion platinum coin using, you know, a fairly abstruse part of the legislation associated with the Treasury and the, uh, and the Mint. But, Stephanie, the thing that really I found interesting was it seemed to let people start to understand the concepts that underlie modern monetary theory. Do you think that's the case, or am I crazy? Well, I don't think you're crazy at all. I I think that discussion was interesting and exciting for many of us because it did start to pull out into the open some of the sort of dark and dirty secrets about our modern monetary system and how it operates and how money is conjured up uh, in the modern digital era. And these are things that a lot of people, I think, don't stop and think about. Most of us deal with you know, we write a check and so there's something physical when we make a payment or we may hand over a $5 bill or a 20 and, and we think of money in terms of some kind of a physical thing and suddenly there was this proposal that uh, that the Treasury might, as a way of getting around the debt ceiling debacle, mint a proof platinum coin. And I think the, the value that most people were talking about at the time was a trillion-dollar coin, but different people had different ideas about what number should be stamped on that coin. 
And what profile? I mean, there were people arguing for Reagan. Yeah, no, whose face and which which dollar amount, right? How many zeros and what number to put in front of all those zeros and that sort of thing, 60 trillion, 100 trillion, 1 trillion. But the idea was most of the talk that I heard was about just uh, a trillion-dollar coin as a way of saying to the Republicans who would hold uh, the country hostage and threaten to default on the nation's debt and so forth and say, well, you don't actually have to raise the debt ceiling. We'll just mint a trillion-dollar coin and we'll use this loophole. And the way that this would work was that uh, the Secretary of the Treasury has the legal authority. I know some folks like to take this up and say, well, it wouldn't really be legal or constitutional, but a number of constitutional law professors at Yale and Harvard and elsewhere, including the former Mint director, have looked at this and said it would have been perfectly legal to do this. So what could have happened if the Secretary of the Treasury had chosen to do this is that he would order the striking of a coin, and he would get to say what the coin would look like and the denomination and what goes on the coin, if somebody's face goes on the coin. And you use a very small amount of platinum, or there were arguments from the GOP that it yeah, would be so much platinum that it would sink the Titanic and all this kind of stuff. Well, that's not how seniorage works. This is about seniorage, so it's about using something with limited value and stamping that thing with a much greater value and then giving yourself the permission to spend the difference between the actual cost of manufacturing the coin and the value. Can I pull pull you back to seniorage for a second? Sure. Because seniorage actually was important in the 16th or 17th century when the people issuing the coinage that the country operated under would essentially debase the currency. That is that the weight value versus the currency value would be less than the currency value, right? Correct. So seniorage is the profit the government makes by making a a one-ounce gold coin actually be three-quarters of an ounce, right? Right. Or or other monetary units. I mean, it doesn't have to be gold, but they're, they're seniorage in creating all kinds of different money things. But the thing is, with fiat currency, which is what we have, the seniorage is, except for pennies, is essentially infinite. I mean, you know, the cost of printing a $100 bill is not zero, but it's a small fraction of $100. Right. So they would, in in theory, have been able to use a very small amount of platinum and create the capacity to spend in a much greater quantity. So if we take the trillion-dollar coin for $1,300 or whatever the estimates of a small amount of platinum were at the time, they could have stamped the coin with a trillion dollars, and the Treasury Secretary could have taken the coin to the Federal Reserve, deposited the coin, and the Fed would hold the coin and credit the Treasury's account with whatever denomination that coin would have been. So, for example, a trillion dollars. And people freaked out about this and the idea that somehow the government was going to move into really uncharted territory here and that this was above and beyond anything any rational person could ever imagine, you know, conjuring up money out of thin air. It simply isn't done. And, you know, it it quickly uh, was dismissed by the White House. We're not going to be minting any coins, and everybody sort of calmed down about this. I watched the price of platinum, by the way, begin to spike (laughs) during these conversations, which was really amusing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't notice that. Yeah. I mean, gold is still crazy expensive right now, but... uh... It's going to down a little bit. It's like $1,500 an ounce or something. Right. 
which is crazy. But but the point, the reason I bring this up is that what it illustrated is that really we just create money. Well, yeah. It in fact the only place the U.S. dollar, the only place the currency can come from is from the U.S. government. I mean, you and I don't have the authority to create the currency. If we try to do it in our basements at home, they'll <laughs> they catch us. They'll arrest us. Right? It's called counterfeiting. We're not allowed to do that. Although uh, they'll express dismay at least. Yeah, the the idea that somehow the currency isn't already coming from the United States government is is really sort of baffling in some respect uh, because it can't come from anywhere else. Well, that's why I found that I found people's reaction to the trillion dollar coin so interesting is that they were for the first time I think coming to grips with the fact that this is fiat currency. And fiat currency has no backing other than the faith in, of the federal government, right? Yeah, it's it's an unsettling uh, bit of information. When you when you finally come to this realization, it does shake people to their core. I mean, I give a lot of talks and I travel the country and I talk about this sort of thing, and people do find this. They when you explain it, they will accept it. I don't leave large audiences with people saying, I don't believe the U.S. dollar comes from the U.S. government. They do believe it when you stop and you begin to probe, but it is it is unsettling on some level that, you know, as Gertrude Stein said, there's no there there for these these people begin to wonder, well, how, how can this make sense and is it sustainable and there there's really nothing behind it. You know, it's there's no gold backing, there's no gosh, it doesn't seem trustworthy in some respect. Right, and it's deeply confusing. I mean, I, I think it's just an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance because people want to believe that the thing they have in their hand that they can exchange for goods is actually worth something because, well, they can. And but it is. They, but they only can because of mutual agreement to treat these exchange articles as worth something. It's something somebody else will accept them back. That is, when I buy a ham sandwich from my deli, the guy at the deli is buying his ham with the same currency or even numbers on a credit card and just stored away there. Yeah. What we like to ask people to think about is why is that? You know, it, it isn't a sufficient explanation to say that I accept the U.S. dollar because I know that I can pay my mortgage with the dollar. And why does my mortgage company take dollars? Well, because they know that they can pay their workers. And why do their workers take dollars? Well, because they know that they can go to the grocery store. Well, why does the grocery store? So it becomes what we refer to as an infinite regress problem. You go to infinity backwards, and you never get to a quite satisfactory answer about what it is that gives value to the currency, what drives the acceptability. And so what my colleagues and I have been doing for a number of years is not reinventing the wheel by any stretch of the imagination, is we've gone back to early as Aristotle and all the way through Adam Smith and into Keynes and beyond and James well, Tobin. Well, even, even and, before that, because when Graeber, Graeber's book, yeah. The First 5,000 Years of Death, mm -hmm. says that the totting up preceded the creation of currency. The what? I didn't catch what you said. The, the totting up, the, the exchanging of debts. Yes. If you look at the, the ancient Mesopotamian yes. cultures, that they were working out debt in advance of their having actually had currency. Yeah, so the people who are really good at this are definitely not the economists, and Graeber takes note of that in, in the early chapters. He had some rather unpleasant things to say about the scholarship 
coming from the academic community within the economics discipline, although he does cite a number of works from people at UMKC. I think four of us are cited in his book as, as exceptions to that, and he does draw on some of the work that many of us have done on the history and early origins and nature of money. But for the most part, the really good work in this area comes from the anthropologists and the sociologists and these people who call themselves numismatists who study the history of numbers and why did people invent writing and numbers it was to keep track of debts and debits and credits to track payments and obligations owed, early forms of debt. And this is all traced out really beautifully in the early parts of Graeber's book. And so there's this really rich story about how you can take a society that is a primitive society that does not have private property, that does not have money, that does not sit by and sell labor and so forth, and you can monetize an economy like that by having an authority come in. It could be a palace community. It could be uh, an early nation state. But somebody comes into one of these areas that has previously not been monetized and imposes liabilities in the form of fines and fees and taxes and then says to the population, in order to settle these obligations to me, you must provide, and then they state how the debt can be settled. And suddenly those populations who would never have worked and produced and provided resources to earn the British currency, for example, the African population said, okay, I guess we're subject to a village tax, a hut tax, a head tax, whatever it is, we're going to work and produce for the British pound, which is intrinsically worthless, but suddenly imbued with value because we need that thing to settle our obligations to the crown. And so you can drive a currency. You can get people to work and accept the currency, which is what we were talking about before. Why does it have value? Why will people work and produce things in order to get it? And the reason is that the state accepts it in payment of liabilities which are imposed on you. Right. The central tenet of modern monetary theory is that money is created by government in order to assess taxes, in order to pay for, well, first armies, right? Yeah, I and, mean, mercenaries historically were, yeah. And, and they needed to be small denomination currencies as well because you didn't want to spend a whole lot on mercenaries. So the original reason to create a currency was in order to impose taxes on people in order to pay mercenaries or citizens to be in the army. Yeah, and to move or, or it's not, and it's, to, not even to feed, it's not just to be to feed them. Right, right, and to move resources to get the private sector producing things for the public sector. So to move resources from private domain into public domain. Now this follows, of course. You know, I'm going to be a pain in the neck for just a minute, and that is that centralized agriculture actually drives this. When you were saying earlier that you know people in Africa were. Yeah. Con well, they, they, they had not adopted centralized agriculture. And the, this whole stuff starts out in the Mesopotamian cultures where they adopted centralized agriculture rather than hunter-gatherer or other kinds of economic models, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of history here. My colleague, uh, Michael Hudson, has written really great, uh, wonderful, long books that detail all of this, looking at ancient Babylonia and so forth. But, right, it's with the rise of the surplus until you have... Um, agriculture developed well enough that there's a surplus that can be extracted, then none of the rest of this sort of follows. Right, and then you end up with a hierarchical society with serfs at Correct. the bottom and, you know, a few people at the top. And the use of 
money is in part to extract, is in, is in part to make it possible for the serfs to pay you off. And that money was debt before it was currency. That is, the serfs in the Mesopotamian society were responsible for a certain amount of produce every year. They were sharecroppers, essentially, right? Right. And so they, you know, there would be notches in sticks or there would be other methods of keeping track of what fraction of grain they're supposed to deliver. And that preceded the existence of currency is the argument that the MMT people make, right? Exactly. And and people like Graeber and Michael Hudson, who I mentioned a couple minutes ago, they do this beautifully, the tally system and so forth. So credit comes first, the the use of simple, um, you know, balance sheet entries to keep track of obligations owed, debits and credits and payments and so forth, without the use of any physical coin or anything circulating, uh, credit definitely comes first, yeah. Right, and, and so even the idea of a of stock, I mean, that word yeah. comes from the breaking off of a, of a, a piece of wood, right? That's right, the stock and the stub. One right. piece stays with the debtor, the other with the creditor, matched up at time of payment. Debt. Is, and of uh, course, and, and so that's off. now. And and the other idea that he talks about is that currency becomes more important when the transaction becomes more and more anonymous. That's right. That's right. Um, so it becomes impersonalized when you can trade those third-party liabilities. I mean, a stock in the stub is hard to trade because mm -hmm. the borrower and the lender knew who they were, or the creditor and the debtor knew who they were, if you want to put it that way. But when you've got, and, and one of the things Graeber says is that at times of dislocation, at times of war, currency becomes much more important because you need to be able to trade it with people you don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, I mean, there's this history is so rich. It's not really my area, but then you have the whole history of debt forgiveness and the wiping of the slate clean and periodic the jubilee, the jubilee and so forth. So and, and don't we need that right now for you know everybody under thirty? Well, look, I was looking at the student loan delinquency rate uh, just before we went on this evening, and yeah, there are, there are some astonishing trends occurring. Um, so, yeah, private sector debt it remains a pretty significant problem for many, many people, not just here in the U.S., but elsewhere as well. It's bankruptcy-free. And as Atrio said today, actually, over at his, his blog, Eschaton, he said what's happening is kids are graduating from college with a mortgage and right. no house. That's right. And and no job prospects. Yeah. And, and, and bad job prospects. Yeah. Right. And so the obvious solution, and here, here MMT is not in conflict with, with Keynesian ideas, the obvious solution is to have the government hire people to do things like build roads and, and pull fiber to post offices and um, do other infrastructure investments because, of course, we're at the zero lower bound. And, you know, it's kind of funny because the way I think of it is that um, MMT and, you know, traditional Keynesians kind of merge the same way that in physics the strong and the electronic mag the electromagnetic force and the weak force merge at certain high temperatures at the time of the Big Bang. And whether or not you and Paul Krugman agree about what underlies your positions, you both agree that what we should be doing right now is spending a lot of money hiring people. I absolutely. Yeah, you don't need to you don't need to go back and, you know, five thousand years and debate the nature and origin of money and where it all began. You just need to figure out where we are today 
and whether it makes sense to have 22 million Americans who want to contribute and want full-time work in this country and can't find it. And you mentioned infrastructure, and I love that because it's it's such an obvious need. I mean, things are literally crumbling around us. Levees are breaking, bridges are falling in on people, you know, water facility treatments. There's an article in our local paper here just the other morning about how many people in the city of Lawrence, Kansas, where I live, uh, rely on bottled water because the water that comes out of your tap tastes so much like dirt and then a whole discussion about what it would cost in terms of investment to deal with that um, water treatment issue. And, and that's all part of the national infrastructure. And so you have the uh, civil engineers come out periodically with a report card for the U.S. infrastructure, and they look at everything from roads and bridges and airports and schools and hospitals and water treatment facilities and levees and dams. I mean, the whole range of the nation's infrastructure, and they grade every category, B minus, B, C minus, C, D plus, D, and the overall grade that we get on our nation's infrastructure is a grade of D. And the estimate from the civil engineers is that it would take $2.2 trillion of investment in our nation's infrastructure just to get it up to a passing respectable grade. And so 22 million people who want to contribute useful well, things and, for them to do, and, and, and everybody and, scratches their head and says, where would we get the money? And, and underutilized capital capacity as well. I mean, it's not right. just... It's not just it's not just for below capacity with workers. We're also for right. below capacity with capital. So you know there there are there are trucks not being used. There are steamrollers not being used right now, and there are people not being used. And it's obviously good public policy. I, so, I completely agree with you. I mean, the constraint we should focus on is 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 resources. Do we have the resources to do what we think needs to be done? Not the financial resources, because we recognize that those can always be there, but the real resources. So do we have the steel and the concrete and the human beings and the trucks and all of the things that it would take to mobilize resources and engage in, over a period of time, the repairing and rebuilding of our nation's infrastructure? And it's an absolute no-brainer when we can borrow money for free from the rest of the world. And nonetheless, it's not part of current public policy. We're well, talking about I, yeah. deficit rather than about employment. I wouldn't exactly say that we can borrow money from the rest of the world virtually for free because, you know, MMT tries to very strongly demonstrate to folks that the money to buy government bonds comes from government spending. It can't come from anywhere else. So if the government spends, if, if the government runs a deficit and spends let's say $100 billion, and it collects in taxes $90 billion. Well, that $10 billion in additional spending, what we label the deficit, it goes somewhere, and where it goes is into the non-government sector. And so if the government borrows 10 to offset the deficit spending, which is $10 billion, well, the money to buy the bonds comes from the government spending. So we aren't dependent upon China. You know, you often hear this argument. I know you didn't make it, but a lot of folks uh, on the right will, will often say the Chinese aren't going to play ball forever. If we don't begin to cut deficits and get the fiscal house in order, they're going to turn their backs on the U.S., and then interest rates are going to spike, and the whole range of fear-mongering sort of stories unfold from there. Um, but 
we aren't dependent upon the rest of the world in order to spend. We control the currency. This is a point that Paul Krugman has been making recently really forcefully. And I don't know whether you saw the interview that he did on CNBC just a week or two ago, and he sat down with Scarborough and company. I saw and, that, yes. And he made this exact point. You know, he kept saying we control our own currency. It's what distinguishes us from Greece and from an individual state or a business or a household. You know, the issuer of the currency is not constrained. It's not dependent upon China. It's not going to end up forced to default, you know, like Greece, because it can always pay. Right, and one of the points that Krugman makes repeatedly is that the holders of the public debt are the American public. I mean, it's true there's a small amount outside in foreign countries, but it's not really, it's not the same thing at all. And and as you and as the MMT people say, if the government's not running a deficit, then the private sector is running a deficit. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that people like to look back and they say, well. Remember when Clinton was president? Remember those those were the good years because we had not only balanced budgets but we were running budget surpluses. And wasn't this a great thing? So think about, you know, the implications of that. Instead of the government adding 100 into the economy and taking only 90 out, which was my previous example, running a deficit, this time let's have them run a surplus. So they spend 90 in, but they take 100 out. Well, that leaves the non-government sector with 10 less, whereas the deficit left them with 10 more. And right. so you're exactly right. The, the public sector's deficit is the non-government's surplus. And when Clinton was in office and we you know, had the government running budget surpluses, well, that was at the expense of the private sector, which went into deficit on an unprecedented scale. It was clearly unsustainable because you and I – we don't issue the currency, and, and the private sector as a whole can't go on year after year spending more than its income, which is, of course, what the public sector almost always does. I've got a bunch of questions. Let me ask okay. them one by one. Okay. First off, what's, what is the zero lower bound is what Widget Whiteberry asks. And that, of course, Widget, is the fact that you can't reduce interest rates below zero. And so right now we're at a point where the Fed doesn't have the ability to expand the Expand, expand the economy by reducing interest rates because it can't reduce it lower than zero. Um, the next question is, does the revenue from taxes or bonds actually pay for anything? That's from Albert Gainsborough, who's one of the hosts, who's the host of our weekly uh, talking, talking about MMT session. So that's for you, Stephanie. Okay, so that's a really hard one to wrap your head around, but I think the person posing the question, my instincts tell me, knows the answer, and the answer is that no revenues, uh, tax revenues don't pay for anything. Tax revenues um, are essentially money down the drain, if you like. Spending creates money. Spending puts new money uh, into the economy. Government spends by crediting someone's bank account, and when it taxes, it reduces the balance in someone's bank account. So one one adds numbers and the other subtracts numbers, but the subtracting doesn't pay for the adding, if you like. So, but again, that's deeply counterintuitive. It, it is. And and the the idea, and one of the things that Albert Albert's very understands this really clearly, and he will often correct me when I say something that reflects the idea that taxes are actually expenditures, because they're not. They're reductions, right? 
That's exactly right. And the MMT idea is that we, well, let's just say it again because it's hard. What you just said, could you just repeat it? Okay. So when the government spends, it gives instructions to the Federal Reserve to credit someone's bank account. So if it's, you know, Boeing, a contract with Boeing, and it's for uh, $500 million or or whatever. Or or it's a postal worker. Or it's a postal worker. Or it's a government worker of any other kind. Um, the, The instructions to the Federal Reserve are to credit the bank account of that individual or that firm. That's how the government spends in the modern era. A lot of times this is done without even writing a check, right? It could be done through Fedwire. So this is simply a um, person at the Federal Reserve using the keyboard and tapping some buttons on the keyboard and marking up the size of someone else's bank account. And when the instructions come in from someone who's paying taxes, the instructions are to reduce the size of that person's account by the amount of the tax payment. And so, you know, again, it's the era of modern money. This is digital accounting entries, adding and subtracting numbers from people's balance sheets. Right. And the same is true for a postal worker with direct deposit. Right. Of course, that's exactly right. I mean, and if, if, and if that postal worker walks over and buys some stamps, <laughs> yeah, and does, and does that with his debit card, which is how I buy my stamps uh-huh. at, the, at the, my local post office, then we're just you know, we're just moving numbers around, right? Right. But 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 uh, people will object, and, and I'm not reading off questions from me. I'm reading. I'm, I'm re- repeating objections I've heard from other people. That, but that still isn't the same thing as saying the money comes from nowhere, and that's what you're saying. And money comes from nowhere, and it's not real. And of course, that's not true because nobody would believe it if it were. Well, yeah, it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from the issuer of the currency, and the the issuer of the currency is, you know, the Fed and the Treasury together issue the United States dollar um, in one form right. or when another. You, when you say currency, we've just we we've just said that most of the transactions are just numbers on balance sheets. We actually don't use that much currency. Right. Most of us don't, for example, pay our taxes by sending in physical currency. Now, every year, right around April 15th, I turn on the news and I see a story about some local person who's protesting the fact that they have to pay taxes and they send in, you know, uh, a large sack of you know, 60 pounds of coinage or something like that. And and so you do sometimes get those stories. But obviously most of us, if if we're paying taxes, we write a check, and the check sends instructions. You know, the check is not the final payment. The check is not the thing that settles your obligation to the state if you owe taxes. There's something that goes on behind the scenes after you seal the envelope and drop it in the mailbox to the IRS. And what happens is that you're sending instructions to your bank to tell the Federal Reserve to debit their account, the bank's account at the Fed, and the bank is debiting your bank account. And so ultimately what the government is collecting back from you is its own IOUs. And and those are digital entries. Those are what we call bank reserves. And they're conjured up out of thin air. They they don't really come from anywhere else. Well, they literally happen every day. Every day, every the, day. looks around, looks around, and sees that somebody's reserve requirements have increased, and acknowledges that. 
Yeah, and, and of course the Fed's been engaged in quantitative easing now for a number of years, and they're buying bonds in the tens of billions of dollars every month. And the way that they make these bond purchases is the same way that they do everything else that they do. They use the computer, and if they want to purchase $45 billion or $65 billion of mortgage-backed securities or treasury securities or whatever else it is, um, they take those from the financial institution's balance sheet and they replace them with these things called bank reserves, which is nothing more than a credit to the bank's account, which is held at the Fed. So the Fed says, you're selling me a billion dollars of mortgage-backed securities. I'm paying you by changing the number in your account with me up by $1 billion. So you lose the, the interest-bearing right. a- uh, asset and you gain these bank reserves. Right, and which, can can be, which can be used, which can be used to lend money, because the amount of money that the banks can lend is driven by the size of their reserves. No, it it, it isn't. See, that's another one of it's those. The other way around. Yeah, that that's another one of those textbook, um, I think, mistakes, and and it remains in most of the textbooks. You know, I I teach this stuff, and so I know that these kinds of things are still in the textbooks. This idea that oh, they are indeed. The, the, the idea I just that, said it. Yeah, yeah, I know you said But the idea that banks are constrained, okay, banks exist now in the same modern era that the rest of us exist in, and banks don't lend other people's money, and banks don't lend reserves. In fact, not only don't they, but it's impossible for a bank to lend reserves. That's not what banks do. If you walk into your bank uh, tomorrow afternoon and you sit down with the loan officer and you say, I'm looking to take out a loan, whether it's you know, student loan or for a new computer or a car or small business proposal, whatever it is. You say, I'd like to borrow some money. And the loan officer says, what's the money for? And then you tell them. And they say, well, let us find some information about you. Where do you work? How long have you been there? How much do you make? What's your Social Security number? They ask a lot of questions about you. What the loan officer never does is get up from the desk and say, hang on just a second, I'm going to go check our reserve check position. Check the drawer. Right, to find out, or, or our reserve position to find out if we're making any loans today. That's not <laughs> what banks do. So if the loan officer I'm after... Thinking of, I'm thinking of Jimmy Stewart with his $2 bills. You know, right. The wonderful life. <laughs> if, well, let's not mix the old... You know, that's the problem. I think we have this mentality that modern banking looks like goldsmith banking, that there's, you know, some finite reserve thing out there and that when people leave on deposit these gold coins, you can lend out some of the gold coins but hold back, you know, uh, enough to meet the demands of your customers should they come in and want to take out their money. That's not modern banking. So modern banking is the loan officer checks you out, checks out, you know, your credit rating and your history and your employment, all that kind of stuff. And then if they think they can make a profit by lending to you, they add the loan to the asset side of their balance sheet, they acquire the loan, and they credit your bank account with whatever dollar amount they've decided to lend to you. No reserves are used in the making of that loan. They conjure up the deposit out of thin air. Right, and, they at, don't the get end, the money and at the end of the day, if it turns out that the bank's not meeting the reserve requirement, then the Fed says, "Okay, fix that." Right. So banks are subject to these legal reserve requirements, but they don't have to hold reserves 
today against the deposits that their customers keep with them today, they I don't want to bore your listeners, but No, no, they, no, this is important actually. They hold reserves over a two week period of time that's known as the uh reserve maintenance period. And so they have to hold reserves over that two week period of time that average the amount that the Fed says they have to hold, which is 10% reserve requirement. So they have to hold over that two-week period of time an average against the deposits that their customers held with them in the previous two-week time period, which means the bank can always meet the demand for loans from creditworthy customers, satisfy the loan demand, and then if necessary, go out and get the reserves in the future to meet the legal reserve requirement. And there are lots of different places that banks can go to borrow reserves to make them leg you know, to make sure that they comply with the legal requirement. But they're not constrained in any moment in time by the reserves that they have on hand. Right, because uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense and I appreciate your explaining in detail. I've given a, I've given a couple other questions and I've crapped out a second life, so I wanna Answer, ask them, and then uh, come back into Second Life. Um, Entropy Seller says, how would Greece get out of the euro debt by going into its own currency? Would that work for them? And I think not. I think they're screwed. <laughs> um, well, is there a way for a country that has joined a currency union to uh, exit that currency union once it's joined? And I think the answer is yes, and the reason I say that is because other countries have done it in the in the past. There's a precedent for that. Well, um, certainly countries that have used um, the dollar as a target, like Argentina, for example. Right? Well, I'm talking about Slovenia. There oh, was, really? Yeah, there was a, a currency union there, and I think it was in 2001, if I'm not mistaken, that Slovenia exited the currency union. And, um, you know, I've actually put some folks in the Eurozone who have an interest in pursuing the possibility of, of getting out of the Euro in touch with the person who drafted the the, the um, blueprint, I guess, uh, is what you would call it. So this is someone who spent months and months designing the plan, and it's not an easy thing to do um, because, you know, there are so many things to think about. When do you stock the ATM machines with the new currency and how do you convert outstanding debts into the new debt and at what price? I mean, all this range of, you know, complex well, it's, issues. It's weird because even if, if Greece went back to the drachma, the euro would still hold value. Oh, sure. Because you could use it in the rest of Europe. And well, the euro the euro would definitely still hold value because you have uh, 16 countries still requiring that the, they're still making payments in euro and still requiring that payments made to them be made in euros. And so, as long as that's as long as that's happening uh, and those governments are stable, the euro is going to have value. Right. So it sounds really complicated to do this. I mean, oh, for example, example, you know, it's, it's a mortgage. The mortgage is written in euros. And the, how the state would be able to dictate to a German bank that they have to accept drachmas, I don't see how that would work at all. Well, that's exactly how it would work. And, uh, you know, Iceland, Iceland, Iceland did something. Yeah. yeah, so Iceland had its own currency. Right. We're back, we're back to Krugman. Right, but know. in terms of defaulting and telling creditors what they're, what they're going to get, you're going to get nothing or you're going to get this in this currency or you're going to get half, you, you know, you can do that uh, at what cost. Well, it, it can get very, very ugly. 
but it's very ugly in Greece right now. Of course it is, yeah. So I think the answer to the question is there is precedent. It is possible. Um, it it would probably be disruptive is to understate by a wide margin. Right. And the other question I had before I restart Second Life is that um, Krugman talks about a 0% return on bonds as a lower bound, but I don't think that's true. Bonds can and do sell for prices that represent a negative return. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, we right now have, like, the 10-year treasuries look like they're at negative returns, aren't they? Yeah, I think, well, I, I guess I don't maybe read as much maybe as I should or follow every uh, everything Krugman says, but whenever I hear him talk about the, the zero lower bound, I always assumed that he was talking about short-term interest rates, just the policy right. the policy rate. Right, the, the rate, that's the, 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 the interbank rate. Right. Yeah. But um, the fact that treasuries real rates of return real rates return on the ten-year right. bond looks look negative right now. Yeah, that's why people are always saying. You know, you hear a lot of folks on the left say things like, "the the rest of the world is begging us to uh, so to, to build borrow, infrastructure right? with the rest their of money. The world is begging us to borrow. Uh, they, they they want these so badly. They'll take a loss, right, to lend to us. Um, but okay, so let's. We, we've we've talked about kind of the fundamentals that underlie MMT, but let's talk about what the policy implications are of the adoption of the ideas of modern monetary theory. Because I honestly think that it's so deeply counter, so much of it's deeply counterintuitive, that the policy prescriptions may make people understand better what we're talking about. Um, and among the policy prescriptions, I believe, is the government should hire anybody who wants to work. Well, uh, that is not part and parcel to MMT. That is uh, something that m many of the academics who, you know, develop the literature that has come to be labeled MMT believe that it is uh, it would be far superior in terms of the economic outcomes to have full employment at all times. And, you know, mainstream economists, basically say it's impossible to get to full employment. I mean, you're never going to really have full employment. What they do is define as full employment the amount of unemployment you need to keep prices stable. So that's how they get to full prices employment. Prices or wages. Prices to keep to keep inflation stable. Where those two things may be correlated, but, but it's the inflation rate. So, right. you know, a Phillips curve sort of an argument or something like that. NIRU, right. what the non NIRU, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, can, can, you, can you remind us what the NIRU acronym is? The NIRU is the Non-Accelerating Inflationary Rate of Unemployment, N-A-I-R-U. So this idea that there is some level of unemployment that once it is reached, um, prices stabilize. And if you were to push unemployment below that level, then you would – get increasing inflation, and so yeah, that would be and, undesirable. Right? And the idea is that that rate is the frictionless, is the, is the rate of just friction, and just the time it takes to change jobs. It, it's got some number like 4% or 3% unemployment, right? Um, I think it's the frictional and the structural unemployment, but it doesn't include the cyclical unemployment. That is the unemployment right. that's a result of the business and that's, cycle. And right. that's a reason for the natural 
Right. So you or, have these mismatches, what, what people refer to as, uh, what economists refer to as structural unemployment, where you have jobs that are available, you have employers who want to hire, and you have people who want to work, but the people who want to work don't have the skills that are required to right. do Right. You, you get frackers in North Dakota and unemployed people in Harlem. Right. That's a structural problem. The frictional right. is just the normal, I quit my job, but I expect to quickly find another, and so I'm between jobs at the moment, but don't worry about me because frictional is, you know, we don't worry about the frictional unemployment. We worry about cyclical and, and structural unemployment. So Right. And the basic disagreement, because this, this is an important issue. It's not really an MMT issue, but the basic disagreement between the new classical people and the new Keynesian people or the traditional Keynesian people is the new classical people view all unemployment as structural. That is, it's a result of exogenous shocks that come to the system and make it different rather than being business cycle related. The real business cycle is related to shocks to the system rather than other things happening, you know, like monopolies and monopsonies and other stuff going on. Is that right? Yeah, you're right that the classical economists believe that labor markets are very efficient. And so really, you know, when they see unemployment, they essentially conclude that any unemployment that exists is either the result of some policy error, usually monetary policy uh, screwing things up, or it's just simply voluntary unemployment. And we don't worry about the voluntarily unemployed. People are simply choosing leisure instead of labor and Right. So they make these arguments about how people just taxes are too burdensome, or uh, it's or, or, or for whatever changes. reason, right? There are structural changes in the economy that mean that they need to move to North Dakota, and they that's haven't done right. it yet. That's right. Because that, I think that's the core argument: is that exogenous shocks go, and, and they would treat, for example, the housing market debacle as an exogenous shock, which it obviously isn't. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hard to find much sympathy for these arguments when, at least after the financial crisis and the ensuing economic meltdown, you've got seven people looking for work for every job vacancy. Now that the recovery has at least begun, um, we've still got three and a half or so, 3.7 people looking for work for every job vacancy. So it, it, it wouldn't be enough even if all the unemployed people suddenly overnight had exactly the skills that all the people looking to hire are are wanting, there still aren't enough job vacancies for everybody who wants to work. So you've got much more going on there than just a structural problem. Right. But they but they would deny that. I mean if you were if you were to bring Ed Prescott into the room right now, he would say, No, 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 it's 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 voluntary. I mean people can choose to do what they want to do. Well, now, you can't call it voluntary when they're officially unemployed, right? Because the only way that you get counted as unemployed officially is if you're is actively seeking work and right. unable to find it. So, yeah. And, and this is one of the things, you know, I, I don't want to belabor this, but, you know, when I had Brad DeLong by a while ago, mm-hmm. we talked about, you know, the intellectual honesty of these people and the question of whether or not the profession, as as we call it, as the economists call it, um, is actually fulfilling its intellectual burden when you look at the new classical people simply denying data evidence. I mean, do you, do you think that's a problem? Do you think the profession's losing credibility? I, it's the greatest setup of all time. I mean, it's almost too easy to answer. Yes, it's a it's a 
desperately dangerous situation, I think, where we are today. Um, economists are not the objective, uh, value-neutral, normative scientists that the textbooks pretend that they are. I mean, these are people with, you know, deeply held beliefs about the political system and political parties and some very clearly will shill for different special interest groups. I, you've seen the movie. You've probably seen at least maybe some of your listeners have seen footage of, uh, maybe I won't say his name, but a very well-known economist getting sort of caught uh, fudging his CV after writing a paper that was commissioned, and he was paid $125,000 to write the paper on the Icelandic banking system and concluding that the Icelandic banking system was in fantastic shape, couldn't be better, everything looks wonderful. And shortly thereafter, of course, things, it becomes very clear that things are not rosy and um, this individual, well, the, the CV is changed from a uh, title of a paper that says, you know, stability of the Icelandic to the instability of, and then, uh-huh. you know, this Good is all in a, in, a, in a movie. It's some of the most uncomfortable footage I think I've ever seen on film, captured on film. But, you know, this and, the, and this goes through, not just him, but they speak with other economists. And you know, when you, you can get paid an awful lot of money to write a report on behalf of, you know, somebody who wants to, Build something, drill something, not build something, change attacks. What you know, we're called upon to do this sort of work, and so it really does blur the lines and muddy the waters of the objective work an economist is supposed to be doing. Well, what Brad was saying was that he thought that we were engaged in a debate, that we were engaged in, and in fact, the new Keynesians adopted the Lucas critique and the other things that um, the new classical people or the rational expectationists were saying was wrong with um, Keynesians. In fact, they weren't incorporating the fact that their models were visible to the actors involved. Um, the way Sargent would put it is that people aren't stupid. And if you're going to, you, you can't run these big macro models without incorporating the idea that people would no, you're running the big macro models. And that's, that was a good criticism. And that got incorporated. And so what Brad was saying was that we thought we were in a debate. And what happened instead was we weren't. The other side was perfectly fine with monetary policy dictating how we were managing the economy. Mm-hmm. And so were we. But once that stopped working, we discovered that we weren't in the debate. And that's kind of bizarre. Yeah, well, so was the monetary consensus from the perspective of many of us. I mean, many of us were sitting in the background just shaking our heads. The MMTers, for example, we were never on board with the monetary consensus and the idea that somehow we had entered a new era and macroeconomics, all you needed was a smart, incredible central banker and a few tweaks here and there, and, and you could manage the uh, macroeconomy and you could have Target, stability. Targeting interest rates, all, just, just target interest rates, that's all you need. Exactly. I mean, Taylor rule and, and all this sort of stuff, and you can really manage the economy and you can have very good outcomes without fiscal policy. This was the new era. And so, yeah, I think after things melted down, I could say for myself, I genuinely believed that this was going to open a dialogue that would allow one of these revolutions in economics. This is how it's always happened. History 
changes the way we teach economics. The Great Depression changed the way we taught economics. The classical model fell out of favor and it ushered in Keynes and you know you had several decades of dominance of Keynesian and then when Keynes's ideas were as Joan Robinson said bastardized and converted into this ISLM synthesis this simplified version of Keynes uh and then all of a sudden you had the high inflation of the 70s so what happened was stagflation high inflation high unemployment rates and economists said well, the Keynesian model doesn't work. You guys said we could have full employment and price stability, and now we have high inflation and high unemployment. So that model's out, and then here comes Lucas. And so changes in world events have allowed different ideas and economic frameworks to come into dominance. And so I think after the Great Recession, we thought, well, this is a time for rethinking, and we need, we all need to go back and take a really hard look at the way we describe the working of the macroeconomy and the policy responses, and it just didn't happen. And that's bizarre. Brad is exactly right. Return to 1927. Yeah. And yep. There was no group rethink. Well, and, and what Brad's saying though is that people who have been clearly wrong, and in an academic discipline. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're supposed to say, oh, my God, mm-hmm. I'm wrong. I agree that I'm wrong, as Brad did in this in this post mm-hmm. where he said, mm-hmm. I, I was wrong. I thought that the Fed would not permit 8% unemployment. I thought that the government would not allow 8% unemployment. I mm-hmm. thought that, that this wouldn't be possible, and I was wrong. They, they will. And that mea culpa post is one that I thought was really moving. But the thing is, is you don't see the new classical guys saying that. They're clearly wrong, and the Australian people are clearly wrong. Yeah, they're doubling and down on stupidity, I think. What is the MMT explanation for the uh, 70s stagflation? Well, I don't know that it's an MMT explanation. I think that... Well, what's the policy regime MMT is sort of followed? Well, you know, the oil price shock did happen, and so MMTers do not say that you cannot have simultaneously high inflation and high unemployment. We've never said that. So what we say is that when there is slack in the economy, the way that we have today, as you said earlier, it's it's lots of available resources. It's not just that you have lots of people who want to work, but that you have underutilized capacity and you have all these other things. So MMTers say that you should be able to increase demand for resources in an environment in which there are lots of unused resources with a zero bid, nobody's competing for those things, without driving up prices. So, in other words, without setting off that demand-pull inflation that economists talk about. But we're well aware of the fact that you can get cost pressure, inflation pressure, fed through the supply side because you have a spike in oil prices or other commodity food prices, a drought, well, or a, well, there are well, lots of things that can happen. What I've always thought is that the problem was that Arthur Burns and Richard Nixon weren't willing to accept the recession, and they tried to inflate, they tried to do what Keynes said, they tried to use money illusion to fool people into thinking that their real income hadn't fallen in the wake of the oil price increases. That's what I've always believed that led to that stagflation. Is is that a crazy thing? I don't know. I think I might have to ask you for a few minutes to work that one out in my mind. Uh, I'm well, not prepared to okay, that's fine. That's call fine. you crazy because I want to I try to work through and understand. We, we won't do that. We won't okay. do that. So, 
my question is, what is the response of an MMT or two in exogenous shock like a 10% increase in oil prices? Well, just take the loss, take the recession. It seems to me that in this case, the um, rational expectationists, the um, new classical people are right. Take the recession. It is really an exogenous shock. Well, okay, let's think about this. A recession is a sustained period of contraction of real output. So in the face of rising oil prices, MMTers would be so out there already advocating for ways to reduce the vulnerability of the U.S. economy to oil price shocks. And so in right. addition to developing infrastructure, we want a more diversified energy portfolio and all those kinds of things. But, yeah, there may be certain things that are going to cause pain in the short term if oil prices spike. So, yeah, I don't I don't know that MMT thinks there's a magic bullet out there in the face of a rise in oil price. But we've had, what, a I don't know what the percentage increase in oil prices has been just over the last five years or so, but it's certainly not trivial, and it's just caused consumers to shift their spending patterns. Right. And, in fact, they might argue that you should increase taxes on energy in order to ameliorate future shocks. Then you could lower taxes on energy if there were shocks. Yeah, if you thought that the demand was price-sensitive enough. Yeah. Right. Well, the problem is it's really inelastic. That's one of the yeah. problems. Yep, that's with, right. With oil prices is that you know, you, you you can't trade your SUV in for a three-wheeler. I'm in easy. the market for a seven-passenger solar vehicle, if, <laughs> if any of your listeners have tips. Well, we're running out of time. What I really wanted to do is make sure that we got clear statement of the thesis that drives MMT, because it's still deeply counterintuitive to a lot of people to think about money as being not real. And you don't say it's not real, right? No, I don't say it's not real. You know, the thing that I find ironic is that when you open up an economics textbook and you turn to the section where money is introduced, there's this kind of once-upon-a-time story. It's that once-upon-a-time, man conducted himself on the basis of barter. Maybe it's a Robinson Crusoe story. That that comes up a lot, right? But that you had individuals and they produced things, and then they traded the thing they had for the thing they wanted. And it was clumsy and inefficient, and over time, individuals decided, we should invent something to make this whole process a little bit more efficient. So they come up with money, and the primitive money things are supposed to be shells and beads and feathers and all that kind of stuff. And then they go, wait, maybe we could make this a little bit more efficient. And so they say, what about gold and silver? They have great properties. We can melt them. They're divisible. They're durable. They're portable. This would be more efficient. And all along the way, it's this quest for making economic life better, for making it more efficient, for making it work for people. And they say, well, we don't really need the gold and silver. We could just circulate paper and have the gold back it up. And then eventually you take the next step and you go to the pure fiat system, which is supposed to be the pinnacle of efficiency. This is where we've arrived today the height of efficiency, mostly digital entries, blips on a computer screen, back and forth. What could be more efficient than this? And suddenly, we've developed a monetary system that is supposed to be the most efficient possible system in the world that makes economic life work the best it can possibly work. And now we have a broken economy, and the answer is, if only we had some money, we could fix this. So there's great <laughs> irony in this, right? I'm telling you, this, this is sort of the we, MMT We have message. devised 
we have devised a system perfectly engineered to solve our problem right now, and we won't use the tools. And we can't figure out how it works. It's crazy. I just want to add that that story is false to fact. It wasn't barter replaced by money. It doesn't work that way. No, no, no. That's the textbook story. It's one of the things that kind of weirds me out about the John Locke Rousseau story about savage beasts turning into civilized people through a social contract. That's not how it works either. Mm -hmm. That's false to Mm -hmm. fact. It's Mm -hmm. something that's widely held by Americans anyway, and I think most people in the OECD, and it's not what happened. Uh, It's false to fact. And so is the idea that barter preceded the development of money systems. That's just false to fact. But the movement from a backed currency to a fiat currency is true. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That did happen. We did mm-hmm. have that. Mm-hmm. And we discovered that the backing was senseless. But we still act as if the currency is backed in our own heads. We act and, as if we're constrained by the old set of rules. That's exactly right. Right. And one of the things that MMTers say, and then we'll wrap, is that really these are self-imposed constraints. The debt limit's a good example of a self-imposed constraint. There's no reason for it. Exactly right. And there's no reason for that. And it's there in order to impose discipline, but that doesn't make any sense, does it? So why is it there? Oh, I just read a terrific little book. I wish I had it sitting beside me because I'd tell you the the author's name. I'll tweet it out tomorrow for anybody who might be interested. And drop um, me an email because it'll I, have the author. I will. It's a terrific little book on the history of the debt ceiling and why this thing just won't go away in spite of the fact, as you say, that we don't need it. It doesn't serve a useful purpose, and in many cases it serves a purpose that is actually quite destructive. The idea is that it's supposed to provide that sort of fiscal discipline that causes Congress to take a hard look at the decisions even after they've approved the spending. That's the crazy part because they've already committed to making those payments and the debt ceiling is there to have them go back and take a second look. You know, Did you really mean this? Or it's a way for them to claim that they didn't really spend the money. I mean, that's really what it's about, I think, is being able to – it's as the Republicans have been saying since Reagan that they're committed to balanced budgets and reduction in deficits and smaller government, and they have every single year that they've had control passed larger budgets and larger deficits. Well, thank goodness, because those public sector deficits become the private sector surpluses. So So, we know bad things happen when they stop doing that. We've seen it. There have been, I'll just, if I can squeeze this in, I know you're running out of time. No, no, take your time. There have been seven periods in U.S. history, going back to 1776, only seven times in our country's history have we balance the books, and even more, which is to say begun to pay down substantially the debt, had a surplus and begun paying down debt, seven periods in U.S. history. The first six coincided with depressions, not recessions, depressions, and the last one, the Clinton budget surpluses, of course, led to the Great Recession, which was prolonged. It didn't exactly coincide, but that's because we had a dot-com bubble and an emerging housing bubble that delayed the effects, the damaging effects of the Clinton surplus. So So you're going to claim this Clinton surplus as well. Great. But the whole idea, of course, and and this is a centralizing thing, that if the government runs deficits, that means the private sector is running surpluses. Well, it means the private sector is running surpluses as long as the government's deficit is bigger than any deficit that we're running with the rest of the world. In other words, 
right. if the U.S. Right. has a trade that, deficit that's that, large, that, yes. that the government has to more than offset that in order for the private sector to be in surplus. I remember that, minus X plus M. Stephanie, it's so great to have you on. We've traveled around tangents, but I really appreciate your stopping by to join us. Thank You're you my so favorite much. show to do. Thanks, Jay. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Right.